Hi everyone, Ben here. So when we were recording this next episode, we thought we were having some issues with Skype. Turns out it was a problem with the microphone, so you get Robot Ben. Hopefully it's not too distracting, and you'll get a normal me next week. Here's the episode. Hey Katie. Hello. Hello. <laughs> this is actually an update show where we're going to talk about a couple of the previous things that we've done podcast episodes on and some of the outcomes with those things. Updates, yes. I'm excited. Yeah, you are listening to Linear Digressions. Okay, so the first one, we were, we're going to go in chronological order. We've got two for you today. And the first one is about electoral insights. Now, this is not about the current race, at least current as of the recording of this episode. Um, this episode was like... I don't know, like the 25th or something that we ever recorded. It's pretty far back in the queue, and it's called Electoral Insights Part 2. Yeah, this is from probably late spring or early summer of last year, if memory serves. And what we were talking about there was there was an ongoing scandal, you might say, in academic political science where there had been a big blockbuster study got published in Science and was covered in This American Life and the New York Times, and it was just the biggest deal in political science in years. Yeah. And this, A lot of people talking about it. Oh, yeah. And the study, just to bring everyone up to speed, first of all, if you, if you want to uh, really get the full background, just go listen to that episode now. But let me give sort of the, the two-minute recap. The What had happened was there was a a pair of researchers, one of them at UCLA and one of them at Columbia. And they were doing a study in which they were trying to understand how effective different kinds of political interventions were with individual voters. And what they were studying specifically was seeing if they could change people's minds on certain issues by going and just talking to them sort of in a door-to-door canvassing way. And in particular, they were looking to see if they could have fairly long conversations with voters, typically 20 minutes or so, uh, and change their minds on, I think it was abortion rights and uh, gay rights. And they found that there was a really big effect in terms of being able to to change people's opinions to make them more tolerant of uh, gay rights or to make them more sympathetic to uh, women who felt like they had to have an abortion at a certain point in their lives. One important coda to the finding in that research was that the effect was only observed or only reported when the canvasser who actually went out and spoke to the voter was themselves a person who had had an abortion in the past or was gay. So that was mm-hmm. that was the result, and it was uh, seen as a big deal because it's actually really hard in general to change people's minds when you go out and talk to them in any kind of political campaign. For example... Uh, TV ads have fairly small effect sizes. They still have effect sizes, and that's why people use them, is, is they, they do have results, but they're they're really kind of marginal results. And what was seen in this study was huge results, like large numbers of people were changing their mind, and they were changing their mind in ways that really lasted uh, for many, many months after the intervention, and that is also pretty uncommon uh, with political campaigns. And there's another part of it, which is that this this felt like a very good, feel-good human, like humanity story, right? Like, if you want to change someone's mind, all you have to do is put a human being in front of them who's being negatively impacted by that view, 
and uh, then the the person on the other side will uh, kind of come around to the idea because there's a human in front of them. So, I mean, uh, to, to me, that's kind of a, a rationale for why this got picked up so much, not just in academia, but by uh, other podcasts and news outlets like This American Life, for example. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. Unfortunately for you and for many other people, for me, <laughs> you know, for Ira Glass, uh, yeah. for the editorial board of the New York <laughs> Times, for everybody else who who was kind of warmed in our hearts by this study, um, it turned out to make a very long story short that the data that underlies the study was very likely just completely fabricated. Um, yeah. And that was what we talked about in uh, the episode before was sort of what was the process we think that was used and how was that discovered. Um, I should note on this that the paper, the original paper was retracted. Uh, the more senior mm-hmm. author on the paper, um, you know, when the problems were brought to his attention, withdrew the paper and said that he didn't know anything about it. And then the more junior yeah, author, yeah. Um, who was doing most of the actual uh data collection and research that that sort of thing um has has always denied that there was any foul play so just with that note uh you know we kind of thought that was going to be the last of it we ever heard was there was this sort of retracted paper and everyone felt kind of embarrassed about what happened and Mm -hmm. uh and let's move on oh so there's an there's an update so there's an update yeah Uh so here's the update one of the reason that that this fraud was uncovered was because there were some researchers they were both at Berkeley at the time one of them is now an assistant professor at Stanford and they were interested in doing similar research to what was reported in this paper um just for the future of this story uh the researchers at Berkeley were um Brockman and Calla and then the main researcher on the the original paper the one that was retracted was named Mike Lacour so Brockman and Calla were interested in doing research similar to what LaCour uh, was writing up in the science article. Um, then they went to try to, they looked at his paper, tried to replicate the things that he had done, um, found themselves unable to do it, and then started pulling on a couple of the loose threads. And that was how yeah, it became clear. Yeah, that's how kind of the fraud was revealed. Exactly. But Brockman and Calla were still interested in doing the study. <laughs> oh, so they didn't, they didn't stop there. They actually tried to, so rather than say, oh, we tried to replicate the study, we couldn't get any of the results, it looks like actually a lot of the data was fabricated, end of story. They actually decided, you know what, no, we actually want to, like, we want to know the answer to this. Like, what would this study actually yield? Well, yeah, because the research question hadn't been answered. Like, is this actually, yeah, I guess that makes sense. is this actually, regardless of whether the paper that record, that reported that this is a uh, a very effective way of talking with people and changing their minds, uh, maybe the paper was was falsified, but that doesn't mean that the effect isn't real. Uh, it just means that you haven't proven that it's real, right? And <laughs> so they were still interested in the answer to that question, so they went out and did the research. And they did it uh, in a slightly different way, and we should talk about that, but let me just report the result first. So they found that in the people that they studied, there actually was, <laughs> interestingly enough, a really big effect of people changing their minds? No. Of course. I mean, this one, well, I mean, no, not of course. We didn't know that, but it makes it just (laughs) such a good Okay, so like, I, Uh, yeah, I guess my, okay, so I I just identified a fallacy in the way that I thought about the story when we were first talking about it is that when 
when you told me that all of the data seemed to be falsified, I had that feeling of like this this sinking feeling of like, oh man, that would have been such a great story, but it's a bummer that it's not true. And that is totally a fallacy because that's not ex that's not what we were saying. We were just saying that the effect that was reported is not necessarily true. Uh, yeah, I mean, hold on a little bit to that sinking feeling because I think there's like some places where we need to be careful about the new Brockman okay. and Calla result. But the new Brockman and Calla result, interestingly enough, shows that the original core result might have actually been, uh, you know, if the data had been real, they, it might have found uh, a substantively similar uh, conclusion to the one that it found wow. with fake data, funnily enough. There are a couple ways that the new research is uh, not exactly the same, though, in the conclusions that it reached. So first of all, they were talking about different issues. In this case, they were talking with people about their feelings about um, uh, transgender individuals. And there's a lot of transphobia where people don't like or, you know, have like sort of um, are discriminatory towards uh, people who are transgender. So by that, I mean that the gender that someone identifies as is not the sex that is assigned to them at birth. Uh, mm -hmm. And there's a lot of, you know, sort of all kinds of uh, social problems that transgender people ha have had historically because of this. And so it's, you know, trying to make people more open-minded about transgender individuals. So you identify uh, people who might be good folks to talk to. You go talk to them. You uh, give them a questionnaire before and after this conversation. And you do it sort of at time intervals so you can see if the conversation has sort of a lasting effect one of the things about these questionnaires is you have to be a little bit careful to uh, try to hide what you're studying when you do things like this sometimes because there's something mm -hmm. called social desirability bias where oh, when yeah. you talk to people, they say they tend to say things that they think are what you want to hear as the researcher. So if you, if you let them know what it is you're studying and sort of what you think is the socially desirable thing for them to be doing, you'll sometimes see the effect that they you know, people, people want to please you, I guess your research subjects yeah. want to please you. And that's not what you want as a researcher. So the questionnaires were uh, constructed in such a way so as to kind of bury uh, a some questions about your feelings about transgender issues in a survey that has questions about many other things. Ostensibly, the survey was about some policy at a university that was looking to review their, you know, policies on a whole bunch of things. And so the, the idea was to misdirect the subjects a little bit so they weren't suspicious of, of what the research topic was. And interestingly enough, because the original LaCour paper was such a exercise in like kind of weird data collection and things weren't recorded or evidence was destroyed or, you know, it was just there was all kinds of stuff going on because there's most likely underlying fraud, right? The Brockman and Calla paper, this new one, is very extensively documented, like all of their research material, their code, the data is all available online. And it's, it's an exceptionally open paper in terms of what exactly did they do? What were the materials they were using? What were the raw results? What were the, the um, analyzed results, all this stuff. So as an aside, you can actually go in and, and you can find all this material, like the questionnaires and things like that. But I said at the beginning that there's maybe an asterisk or two on the conclusion and here's the asterisk that I would place on it right now is mm -hmm. that the way that they actually did the, you know, picked the people that they were going to talk to 
was they sent out a mailer to, to 68,000 people. And the mailer said, we'd like to invite you to take an online survey. This was sort of the entry survey where they would measure people's kind of baseline feelings about transgender rights and also ask them all kinds of kind of made up questions about university policies. And then of the people who filled out the surveys, they would send someone to their door to talk to them about transgender rights. And or they had a control group that they got talked to about uh, recycling. And I think there were about 1,800 people who answered the survey out of the 68,000 who got the mailers. And this is fairly typical mm-hmm. of these kind, this kind of research. This is one of the things that makes survey research very hard is because you invite people to pr- participate in your survey, and then they usually don't. So, <laughs> so you get uh, much smaller samples than the, the size of the net that you cast. And also, this is the part that makes me nervous, very often the people who are willing to respond to your surveys are kind of a funny population. Um, yeah. So the people who are interested in going online uh, every three months for six or nine months and answering a bunch of questions are not particularly representative maybe of the general population. You might also think that there are people who are a little bit more open to having conversations with strangers about, uh, minority rights and maybe are a little Mm -hmm. bit more open-minded or interested in hearing other people's opinions. And there is this large effect that's seen. The thing that I worry about is that there's basically a selection bias where the people who answer the survey are the people who then get entered into the, the experiment to have the, the conversations with the researchers, but those people aren't really representative and that part of the large effect that you see of them changing their mind is not that the conversations had a big change on them. It's that there was maybe a selection bias. These are the people who are more willing to have a conversation with you about this topic. These are the people who are more Mm open-minded. And so then if you were to try to do something like this in the general population, you wouldn't see nearly as strong of a result because then you'd be talking to people who are a little bit more, you know, kind of average, a little more guarded about their opinions. Exactly. And this is fundamentally a problem with surveys just in general, right? Oh, the, the people who answer surveys are kind of weird? <laughs> yeah, you kind of get a selection bias. You get, like, you're not going to get the extremely busy business people uh, to answer a survey that you drop off at their, their doorstep oh, yeah. because mm-hmm. they're, they're just, they don't have the time to do it. And so they're going to be absent from the population that you're Studying, basically. Yeah, this is a huge this is a huge issue. Uh, this comes up in polling too. You, this is why polling is so hard and it's so expensive. Is because in general, the main tool that we have to do polling on things like who are you voting for for president is calling landline telephones. And uh, yeah, that's <laughs> you know right. who who answers landline telephones anymore? I don't. You don't. I I never answer my landline telephone because. I, I was going to say, one. do you even have one? Because I don't. <laughs> no. I kind of, I, if I had a landline telephone, it would be a rotary dialer. Yeah, and, and they call during the day. So, uh, you know, people who are at home answer the phone, but people who mm-hmm. have jobs typically don't. Uh, you also tend to get an, you, an older population when you're doing landline telephones. So there's a lot of work that actually, the the I think one of the biggest challenges of doing good polling is not of calling all the people it's figuring out who are the people that you're talking to and are these people who are representative of 
the sample that you're actually trying to describe because chances are right off the bat that they're not. And then you have to do some reweighting so that, you know, the one young professional that you managed to get on their landline in the middle of the day then gets their opinion upweighted because they're actually speaking sort of on behalf of a larger population that you didn't reach. And obviously that gets very statistically kind of funny very quickly. That's tenuous, yeah. yeah. Um, okay, so in summary about the Electoral Insights Part 2 update, turns out there may be, in fact, an effect, even though the original studies conclusion data was falsified. Yeah, so that effect was, was yeah. uh, not well supported by their data because their data didn't exist. Yeah. So there may be that, although... It might just be selection bias. Yeah, so it should be taken at least with a grain yes, of salt. but certainly very interesting. Um, we have another update, so should we move yeah, on to that one? Or I should say, should we go on to that one? <laughs> um, we, we have an update on the episode that we did about Go, and this wasn't all that long ago. It was about AlphaGo, which is the um, software. It, it went up against a highly rated human in the Go world and uh, played a game. because It's kind of like the whole chess match, uh, but with Go instead. And Go is just a much, much, much more difficult problem to solve. Yes. So what we talked about in that episode was, first of all, just what is the game of Go and what are some of the things that make it computationally difficult to deal with. It's it's comparable to chess, like you said, but a lot harder for a computer for a number of reasons. And yeah. at that point, there was this algorithm and it was put together by DeepMind, which is a, a deep reinforcement learning outfit that's based in London. They're owned by Google. And it, I forget exactly if it had just played uh, the European champion or it was a, just about to play, but either way, it uh, really whomped the European champion at the time. And there was a, a friend of mine who knows much more about Go than I did. And the way that he described that was, it's kind of like beating that guy was kind of like beating the American team in the World Cup. Uh, it's an impressive achievement, <laughs> but like anybody who really knows about about the sport recognizes that there's tougher tests out there. Right. So Europe is not the continent that you want to find the world cha- the the continental champion. And the beat place them. where you find that individual is in South Korea. His name is Lee Sedol, and uh-huh. he is widely acknowledged to be the best the Number best one. go player yeah. in the world and so there was a a match that was arranged with him and this was played a couple weeks ago and the the expectation was that he would win AlphaGo might catch up in a couple of years but for right now uh the expectation was that AlphaGo was not going to win they they were going to play a five game series and that AlphaGo might win maybe one of the games yeah and game 1 AlphaGo won. Game one, Alpha one, succeeded, prevailed. Did you hear about the other games? I uh, yes, I did. <laughs> what happened in the other games, Ben? Uh, AlphaGo, uh, AlphaGo beat uh, Lee Sedol at the pretty much the entire match, with the exception of the fourth game. So um, basically, the computer won the game. The, the set of yeah, five. four to one. It wasn't even close. Four to one. Uh, so let's talk about this a little bit. What are some of the things? There's some really excellent journalism that was done by Quartz Magazine and also by Wired Magazine, uh, both as this was go- ongoing and some kind of post-mortem analysis. And there are a few things that they were pointing out. 
One is that it was really cool to to watch Go play from the perspective of someone who knows a lot about high-level Go playing, which is not me for the record. But Mm -hmm. they were saying that the methodology that was used to train AlphaGo, it was kind of a three-step process. Let me go through it real, real quickly here. So the yeah. first thing... And if you want more detail, we've got the, the previous episode where we really go in. Yeah, yeah. But just the, like I said, the, uh, the short and hacky version. So it's a three-step process. Mm-hmm. The first step is you have a deep neural net and you have it watch lots of games of Go between various high-level players. And that's how it sort of learns the rules of the game. It learns some of the general patterns it gets familiar with the game. Then you take this sort of lightly trained neural net and you make small permutations on it. So there's now many different versions of this neural net. Each of them is a little bit different and you have them play each other. And so now it's able to spin up basically millions and millions of games where it's playing against itself and it starts to you know refine its play a little bit. And then the third step is you take that huge bank of games that you've now generated, you feed it back into a neural net, and then that third neural net now learns from all of those games that it's played against itself, and then the third neural net is the one that is actually playing against the human, if that makes sense. Right, right. So step one, you learn from the humans. Step two, from what you've learned from the humans, you play a bunch of games and learn from each other, all these different versions of the, of the network. And then step three is you take all of those games, the human games, and the ones that all the computers have played against each other, and then you train based on that. And the thing that's really cool about this process is you have this middle step, the one where it's playing against itself, and you have the possibility in that uh, sort of framework for it to start doing all kinds of things that people have never done before. Uh, Mm -hmm. and it has all the opportunity in the world to like go out and just play crazy games because, you know, you have millions and millions and millions of CPU cycles to just play around with this stuff. And so from that process, what we're seeing is that it was coming up with moves that humans don't play, uh, and that still end up working out for it really well. So there, and you know, if, if you think about it, humans don't have an incentive to experiment all that far. Like, humans don't have an incentive to play wild, crazy moves and just see what'll happen because humans only get a certain number of Go games in their lives. I mean, we play a lot slower. Yeah, we, we sometimes talk about the exploration versus exploitation paradigm. And I think, you know, the computer has a chance to really explore in a way that humans don't because they're trying to take advantage of the knowledge that they already have. Uh, when they're playing games right. and and the computers maybe don't care about that as much they can just go mess around and see what happens and most of the time you know it's not going to turn out particularly well but sometimes it can figure out like oh you know i can see that we're we're really trying to um fight with each other about some territory over here but i'm going to start playing stones over there and right now there's no connection between these two regions but i know that i've seen ways that you can now connect these two areas of play much further down the line. And the fact that I'm making this big investment in this seemingly unrelated place is going to be something that pays off later when I'm able to connect them. And it figures mm-hmm. out stuff like that uh, in in ways that are like really like very cool uh, and very counterintuitive. And at some point, they even thought that it had made a mistake in one of the games because it played just such a weird right. move. And it wasn't until much later in the game that everyone realized that it was, you know, a move that enabled it to start developing a part of the of the board that then was a major contribution to it winning that game. Right. And as a human, 
who's seen so many games and never seen a move like that, I mean, what do you do if you're if you're Lee? Like, do you ignore it? Do you try to figure out why it's happening? Like, it's it's just kind of out of luck. Yeah, yeah. So there's like this one move in particular where AlphaGo played in kind of a strange spot, and Lee wasn't sure if he was if AlphaGo like what it was doing. And so Lee played a slightly more uh, passive move in response to it. It it started to it's a territory control game, so you're you're trying to place stones around one another's stones and and block sort of the the paths of stones that could like wall off territory. And so mm-hmm. this AlphaGo plays a stone, and what Lee probably should have done in retrospect was play a very aggressive move that started building a wall alongside where this stone was going because that wall would have blocked off a lot of territory on the side of the board but lee wasn't exactly sure what was going on or or thought it was doing something else and so he played a slightly more passive move which was playing a stone above alpha ghost stone so it's it's building a a roof instead of a wall and that roof was starting to block off territory that was comparatively less important than the territory that would have been blocked off by a wall. And so AlphaGo was able to take advantage of the fact that there wasn't a wall along the side of it uh, that was hemming it in. And so it was able to cut in very deeply to that territory and uh, really just grab a big chunk before Lee was able to sort of cut it off. So stuff like that, you know, it's because it it started playing in this sort of weird spot with the idea of then... Uh, sticking like kind of a wall into the more conventional area rather than just going straight for the for the obvious place yeah yeah it's it's hard to describe go games on a podcast yeah <laughs> sorry but um i no, it is okay um but i can say that one thing that i'm really excited about uh is or at least curious about is will this change the way humans play go yes. at oh it point? already has because yeah, I mean, because there, there are all of these things that can be done in that game that humans have not explored because of that trade-off we were talking about earlier between exploration and exploitation. Yeah, I mean, it's it's really cool that you, that you ask that. So the, there are two answers to this question that are why I say yes, and I'm really excited about this. So first thing that's cool is, uh, remember how we were talking that Go played this European champion six months or so ago? Yeah. So that yeah. guy, when he played Go was something like 600th ranked in the world. Um, but then after he played this match, he was brought on to DeepMind to help them develop the the Go play of AlphaGo in anticipation of playing Lee Seedal. So we have sort of a snapshot of how good this guy was at Go at the beginning of this experience. He's 600th in the world. Then he spends several months intensively playing against the computer. And in that time, he moved up a huge amount. He's now in the 300s in the world. Um, just in the span wow. of a few months. And it's because, I mean, I assume he's, he's been playing Go for his whole life. So a few months usually wouldn't make that much of a difference. Nothing, but it's, yeah. you can see it's really, it's a special three months. So <laughs> the second thing that I think is really cool is, so Lee Sudol in the fourth game, this was the game that he won. At this point, he knows that he's lost the series. And he also has gotten a lot of, I think, respect at this point for how skilled AlphaGo is as an algorithm and is realizing that sort of his regular gameplay so far has not been successful. And so like, this is the time to try something new. Yeah. The stakes are lower. They're, they're lower, but they're higher, but it's, yeah, it's, it's time to, to try something weird. And so he plays this crazy move 
that looks like he's sacrificing a stone, basically. It's this move that's called a wedge, where you put your stone in between two stones of the other guys. And usually that doesn't work. And so people never do it. And so, but he does it. The chances, I, I think they did a calculation later of, you know, what are the odds of someone playing a move like that? And it's something like one in 10,000, which given sort of the configuration of the board at the time was just a, almost a minuscule chance that of all the moves you could play, you would pick this move. But he picked this move and it confused AlphaGo because AlphaGo was like, that was weird. Yeah, this isn't, this isn't in my yeah, thinking set. Yeah, and so AlphaGo does not do a particularly good job defending against it. And then you even see later in the same game, AlphaGo tries to do the same move to Lee, but in this like totally irrelevant spot on the board where there's just like, you know, it really did just kind of like throw away a move. Said so it was a very amateurish, like when Lee did it, it was, it was oh, very wow. deep. And when AlphaGo did it a little bit later, they said it was a very amateurish move. And so, and you know, Lee was saying afterwards and, and people who were analyzing the games were saying, this it's this very strange move that no one really expected him to make, but he made this move. We think probably because he he recognized that like the regular style of play is not something that's effective against AlphaGo, and so he was really pushed. I think by the algorithm to to do something creative and interesting and new, and and by doing something really creative and strange, he was still able to. That's when he was able to actually beat the algorithm. So, you know, it's, uh, <laughs> yeah. So by being, by being non-traditional, he basically exposed uh, a hole in the algorithm. The algorithm is not very good at playing against moves that you don't see very often, right? But if Lee, if Lee plays this move and has success and other people see this and play this move and have success against programs like AlphaGo, eventually AlphaGo will adapt because then it'll have more uh, of these moves to train against. Yeah, I'm sure. Like, I'm sure that obviously uh, AlphaGo has probably learned from that mistake. I say that right. because of yeah, that great... later and because I'm sure they're like running more simulations now. Yeah, yeah. But the great thing is that the, the, this is not this is not a static program. Like the the AI in the chess program that comes with OS X, that is a static program. That's not going to change based on new games that it sees. But AlphaGo and algorithms like it, as we're kind of pushing the frontier of the way machines play uh, games like Go, it's an evolving thing. It's a conversation between an algorithm and humans through the, the game as a substrate, basically. And because of that connection, both sides can elevate their game accordingly along yeah with it reminds other. me of we were talking about generative adversarial networks a few weeks ago and how you know you have these two these two actors and they're in competition with each other and that competition makes both of them better i think that's i think that's what we're seeing here linear digressions is a creative commons endeavor which means you can share or use it any way you like just tell them we said hi to find out more about this or any other episode of Linear Digressions, go to LinearDigressions.com. And if you like this podcast, go ahead and leave us a review on iTunes so other people get to listen to this content too. You can always get in touch with either of us. Our emails are ben at LinearDigressions.com and katie at LinearDigressions.com in case you have comments or suggestions for future shows. You can tweet us at LinDigressions. Thank you for joining us and we'll see you next time.